0: Alright, welcome back to Healthspan. This is part two of The Cancer Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Last episode, I focused on the history of cancer, the hallmarks of cancer, and also cancer paradigm 1.0. And in this episode, I'll be focusing on the somatic mutation theory, which is cancer paradigm 2.0. So to understand the somatic mutation theory, we really need to understand what somatic cells are. Somatic cells are all the cells in your body, except for germline cells, which are the cells responsible for sexual reproduction like your sperm and egg. So mutations in these somatic cells accumulate and a random aggregation of these mutations may be enough to cause cancer. This is what Jason Vung calls cancer paradigm 2.0. So the somatic mutation theory suggests the following chain of events. So let's take a normal somatic cell, like a lung cell, a breast cell, or a prostate cell, and let's say it sustains some sort of DNA damage. If the rate of DNA injury exceeds the rate of repair, then random genes become mutated. A chance mutation in a gene controlling growth, like an oncogene or tumor suppressor gene, causes exuberant and sustained growth, and then other gene mutations accumulate randomly over time, and when certain critical abilities, like the hallmarks of cancer, coalesce, then the cell fully transforms into a cancer cell. This is the chain of events that occurs in the somatic mutation theory. Now, this paradigm 2.0 focused research from a lot of these extrinsic agents like chemicals, radiation, and viruses, and focused it more on intrinsic defects like genetic mutations. And all these various carcinogenic insults created the seed of cancer by causing these genetic mutations. Now, the SMT was a real breakthrough, and it showed a lot of promise when it came to these novel treatments. And cancer was really now viewed as a cell-centered problem of genetic mutations. And if we could find and treat those mutations, then we could cure cancer. That's just the simple logic. Um, so a good example of this genetic mutation is one from we can take from the Philadelphia chromosome. So we could use uh, incredibly precise molecular tools to develop entirely new Uh, pharmaceuticals to cure cancer. And like I said, the best example is the Philadelphia chromosome. So this is a really interesting story. So back in 1960, at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, there were two researchers named Peter Noel and David Hungerford, who were studying chromosomes in leukemia, which is a cancer of the blood. And two patients with a rare type of blood cancer called CML, or chronic myelogenous leukemia, they shared a characteristic chromosomal abnormalities. So one of the chromosomes were consistently smaller than the, than the normal. So they saw when they were looking at chromosomes that one of these chromosomes was actually smaller than all the other ones. And these two scientists, Peter and David, they dubbed it the Philadelphia chromosome. So in the Philadelphia chromosome, what happens is a piece of chromosome 9 ends up on chromosome 12 and then vice versa. It's sort of like this translocation that occurs. And when this occurs, the Philadelphia chromosome produces an abnormal protein, which is known as BCR-able kinase. And this protein was this sort of like, uh, remember kinases phosphorylate things and then uh, it's a protein that can uh, control certain functions, and one of the functions of this BCR-ABL kinase was to control cell growth and kind of turn it on and off. Now researchers hunted for a drug to block this kinase, the BCR-ABL kinase, and in 1993, the drug firm uh, Novartis, they selected the uh, a promising candidate called imatinib. So imatinib is a drug that is a receptor tyrosine kinase inhibitor, so it prevents activation of the bcr able kinase thus prevents the excess of growth that it caused during um during this this cancer cml chronic myelogenous leukemia and an unheard of 95% of early stage cml patients completely clear their leukem- leukemic cells with this miracle imatinib drug, drug and this drug was really a miracle um but even more exciting was that it provided a proof of concept for this new genetic uh, paradigm of cancer that if we can kind of like control these genetic mutations, then we can ultimately cure the cancer. Now here's another proof of concept. So that BCR-ABL story was truly incredible. And another in- incredible story was the her 2 new. So in 1987, there was a discovery of the human epidermal growth factor receptor on a cancer cell so if you take a cancer cell or any cell yeah any, any cell besides breast cancer or including breast cancer we know that these cells express receptors on their surface and you may hear doctors say er positive or pr positive positive," and what they're talking about is that whether the gene or whether the cancer has the receptor on its surface so ER positive meaning estrogen receptor positive, PR positive meaning progesterone receptor positive. So these are receptors on the cancer cell that get expressed. And another one of these receptors is the HER2 nu receptor, and this is a receptor that is you know a potent oncogene, and it, data shows that up to thirty percent of all can, all breast cancer actually overexpress the HER2 new. Gene by up to 100 times the normal amount. So, again, there was some genetic engineering that occurred, and scientists at Genentech created a mouse antibody that could actually bind and block the HER2New protein. So, we're actually blocking the oncogene that is causing growth and division of this cancer cell. And this drug is called uh, Trastuzumab, otherwise known as Herceptin. It's a HER2New receptor antibody that's a like monoclonal antibody that's blocking the receptor, preventing cancer uh, from growing excessively. So again, another, another idea, another proof of concept that if we can block this gene mutation, then we can ultimately you know, cure, prevent whatever cancer. And by 2005, human trials showed that Herceptin actually cut the risk of breast cancer death by about one third. So again, that's pretty astonishing. So we're going to continue talking about the somatic mutation theory as well and the genes as well. And I'm going to let you know what we can kind of glean from twin studies. So a large study of twins uh, in Sweden, Denmark, and Finland concluded that the majority of risks in the causation of cancer is actually not genetic. In fact, genetic accounts only for about 27% Uh, of the risk. And the predominant problem is not the gene itself, but really the environment that allows these cancerous tendencies to manifest. In other words, cancer growth depends upon not only the seed, which is like the gene, but also more importantly, the soil. And this is the sort of motif that Jason Fung is going to try to get out this entire book, is that it's really not the, the, the seed, but more importantly, the environment or what he calls the soil that allows these cancerous tendencies to manifest. And again, this is gonna be a recurring theme uh, throughout the entire book. Now, let's take an example of this seed and soil uh, idea. So let's look at the Canadian Canadian Inuits uh, of the Arctic. So after, so these Inuits back in like the 1920s, early descriptions from these Inuit uh, tribes, uh, this native population, it suggests that cancer was really non-existent among this entire population in the 1920s. But after World War II, the Inuit were kind of forced out of their traditional lands and began living in large urban centers. And their lifestyle changed from being of like hunting to more of a westernized way of living. And these Inuits also changed their diet as well. They ate a lot more refined grains and sugars. And as the Inuit lifestyle shifted in the 1950s, the age-adjusted rate of cancer more than doubled. So again, 1923, early 1920s, cancer was non-existent in the Inuit tribe. In the 1950s, the rate of cancer doubled just from this shift in the environment. Now, here's another migrant study that is Pretty mind blowing. So, the breast cancer rate in the United States is two to four times higher than that of China or Japan, even for immigrants. So, listen to this a Chinese woman who moves to San Francisco doubles her risk of breast cancer compared to that same Chinese woman in Shanghai. So, this is the study that came out in 1993, where the breast cancer is like two to four more times in the United States. Even for an immigrant. Um, so this Chinese woman moved from San Francisco, who moved to San Francisco from Asia, doubled her risk of breast cancer compared to the same Chinese woman uh, you know back in Asia. So this is, this is another truly incredible study that came out in 1993. And these well-known migration patterns clearly contradict the paradigm of cancer as primarily a, a, di- a disease of genetic mutation. So at most, genetic tendency comprises 30% of the attributable risk, and it is really the environment in which we live, specifically our diet and lifestyle that carries the most weight in de- determining our risk of cancer. So this is, again, I, I said it before, I'm going to say it again, this is a theme of Jason Fung's book, that it is the environment in which we live, really our, li- our diet and lifestyle that carries the most weight in determining our risk of cancer. So I'm gonna go on a bend about talking about why this somatic mutation theory is really flawed, that it's not really these gene mutations that is causing all the cancer. Um, So we're gonna start by by stating that by the time 2015 rolled around, researchers had identified about 10 million different mutations, 10 million mutations in these cancers. And the mutations differed not only from patient to patient, But even within the same tumor in the same patient, there was a mutation. So even with all these, like, uh, all these, you know, even with uh, what he calls this uh, procrustation work, studies estimated that each breast or colon cancer still required about 13 driver mutations. And in metastatic pancreatic cancer, 49 mutations were needed. So a single gene mutation did not drive cancer. It's not this one gene that is driving cancer. Most cancers had dozens and dozens of mutations that individually contributed only really minimally to cancer growth. Now the other significant problem for the somatic mutation theory was the idea that all cancerous cells are cloned from an original cancer cell. All the cancer cells in a specific patient should have the same, should have been genetic replicas of the original. But this is clearly not true. So within the same patient, metastatic cancer differs genetically from the original tumor. So it's not even the same cell. The hard truth became one of the research community couldn't really deny was that cancer was far, far more genetically uh, different than they were similar. And we kind of move on to the next chapter talking about the denominator problem. So let's say we take 100 cancer samples and find that all 100 of have genetic mutations. We might conclude that having these genetic mutations is the key to developing cancer. But that conclusion is not logically warranted because we are still missing an important piece of information which is what he calls the denominator. So if 100 samples of non-cancerous tissue also contain genetic mutations, this kind of clearly diminishes the importance of genetic mutations in the genesis of cancer. This is what he calls the denominator problem. Again, cancer patients had a lot of mutations, yes, but so did cancer-free people. Some healthy people even had the same identical genetic mutations as those with cancer. So the somatic mutation theory had really ignored this quote-unquote denominator problem, which that there are genetic mutations in non-cancerous tissue. And here's another problem as well. The genetic mutations were really this proximate rather than a root cause of the cancer. So let's discuss proximate versus root cause really quick. So if you look at the kind of end goal or outcome, we know there are these a lot of these proximate causes. And for the longest time, we've been trying to trying to figure out how we can solve these proximate causes instead of focusing on this root cause. And once we can start focusing on the root cause, this is really the key to success. What is the root cause of cancer? And instead of focusing on the proximate cause, how can we focus on the root cause? Now, here's another flaw of the somatic mutation theory. If all the mutations of cancer are accumulated randomly, then why do all cancers cancers share so many of the same hallmarks? So to to become cancer, and I talked about this last episode, To become cancer, cancer cells must gain a number of special new abilities, and as I discussed, it is, cancer grows, it's immortal, it moves around, and it uses the Warburg effect. So how is it possible that if all these mutations of cancer occur, like, accumulated randomly, then why do all these cancers share so many of the same hallmarks? So something is pushing these oncogenes and tumor suppressor gene mutations toward growth, movement, immortality, and the Warburg effect. And the next great leap forward in cancer paradigms will be to understand what is really driving these changes. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead and read the last paragraph um, to end this part two. And it's about losing the war of cancer. So cancer paradigm 2.0, which is the somatic mutation theory, had really hit rock bottom There were a lot of flaws in it. Cancer was still undefeated, and the situation really looked bleak. Millions of cancer research dollars over several decades produced an abundance of new drugs. Some of these drugs, like the imatinib, were truly great, but a lot of them, um, you know, some of them were becoming toxic. A lot of them are extremely expensive. So the drugs weren't particularly useful, But they were very profitable. Like all these drugs are very expensive. There's a lot of money in it. So lack of new drugs, um, the sky-high prices of these drugs, this is all, that's how you lose the war on cancer. And as he puts here, the day is always darkest just before the dawn. So that's how he ends part two. Again, cancer paradigm 1.0, excess of growth, cancer paradigm 2.0 somatic mutation theory. Both of these um, have kind of failed over, over the time. We're not really finding the root cause. We're kind of looking at these proximate causes. Um, so that's part two of, of the cancer code, nice and sweet, or nice and short, um, short and sweet. And then next, next episode, I'll be focusing on cancer paradigm 3.0, which is the idea of a transformation. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope you learned something. And tune in next week for part three of The Cancer Code by Dr. Jason Fung. Thanks for listening.